Today's second reading comes from the third chapter of Luke. You can follow along, I believe, on page 160 of your Red Pew Bibles. On this third Sunday of Advent, this day full of joy, we get a word from John, once again in the wilderness. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the foot of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked John, What then should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked John, Teacher, what should we do? John said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? John said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff, the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, John proclaimed the good news to the people. The word of the Lord. The second, Miss White, walked into the school cafeteria with her fourth grade class at Harrisburg Elementary School. She knew, the minute she walked in, she knew something was off. The volume of the cafeteria was normally at a five when her fourth grade class arrived. All of you with memories of elementary school cafeterias know as the day progresses, it gets louder and louder and louder. But today, when she walked in, it was already at a nine, and the fifth graders hadn't even come yet. And then she remembered, it's the first day of spring. Well, as she waited in line against the wall with her class, eagerly awaiting Taco Tuesday, from across the cafeteria, the principal, a woman named Mrs. Johnson, gave Miss White the look. At that moment, Miss White knew, she knew what she had to do. Now, Miss White was a great teacher, blessed with that special blend of sweetness and strength that made her loved by all her students, but she was also gifted with the ability to control a crowd because she had the loudest voice on the entire staff. 
And with that loud voice, she held in one hand her famous clipboard, a one-two combo that gave her the power to get children's attention no matter how loud the din. So after Miss White gave the message received nod to the principal from across the cafeteria, she walked over to an empty, empty lunch table against the wall and slammed her clipboard on the table at the moment she yelled her famous, Hey! And it worked too well. For it was that day, at that moment, the clipboard decided it had enough of being slammed on tables to get kids' attention, and it shattered into a hundred pieces. Well, the sound of her voice and the shattering clipboard got everyone's attention. The cafeteria, for a brief moment, fell completely and utterly silent. Everyone's eyes were fixed on Mrs. White. And as she stood there with their attention, she did the only thing a person could do in that moment. She started to laugh. That uncontrollable laughter. She was laughing at the ridiculousness of the situation, the fact she had broken a clipboard, and laughing at the beauty and the wonder of all those kids who were waiting for her to speak. And after a brief moment of silence, the cafeteria went to a ten. But this time, with laughter and with joy. The more time I spend with John the Baptist, the more I think I like him. Wardrobe aside, I think I like to hang out with John. He seems like a fun guy, a good guy to have over, to have at a party. He's not afraid of a little conflict, which can stir things up. He doesn't seem to care what people think about him, which is really pretty refreshing. He hangs out with interesting people, never a dull moment when you're with John. And apparently, it seems, he's got this wicked, this wicked sense of humor. Let me explain. For a moment, let's try to imagine the scene of all those people out in the wilderness to receive a baptism from John. Now, you know from experience how difficult it is for us to get you to line up on a Sunday for communion. It's like you've never done it before. Every time it's like organized chaos. You know how hard that is. Now, imagine thousands of people out in the desert, hot, who don't know each other from all walks of life, trying to get and stay in a line. It would be loud and smelly and disorganized, a lot like an elementary school cafeteria on the first day of spring. And in the middle of all that chaos and confusion, John, John the Baptist, gets everyone's attention by slamming down his metaphorical clipboard and yelling at the top of his voice, You brood of vipers! Interesting choice of greeting. You brood of vipers! Who warned you? Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come, huh? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Can you hear me in the back? Do not begin to say to yourselves, yes, good. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have our ancestor Abraham. No, no, no. God can, from these stones, raise up children of Abraham. I mean, look, even now the axe is lying at the root of the tree. Every tree does not bear good fruit. It will be cut down and thrown into the fire. After baptizing people who came out to receive repentance for the forgiveness of their sins, John lays into them with some pointed, harsh words. And standing there in shock, convicted by what John has said about them, 
they ask the only question that matters. What then should we do? There's an old Jewish story about a student who, while reading the Torah, comes to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6, which reads, And these words which I command to you this day shall be upon your heart. Confused, the student turns to his rabbi and asks, Rabbi, why is it said in this way? Why are we told to put these words on our heart and not in our heart? The rabbi thinks for a moment and then answers, It is not within our power to place divine teachings directly into human hearts. All we can do, he says, is place them on the surface so when the heart breaks, they drop in. With his willingness to offer a baptism of repentance, with his willingness to speak the truth about sin with a voice that is loud and clear, John breaks open the hearts of all those gathered by the River Jordan. Crowd, tax collectors, soldiers, all of their hearts are opened. Just enough, it seems, so the divine teaching John offers will drop in. When's the last time your heart was broken that way? When's the last time you were acutely aware of your complicity in some system, structure, or behavior that was in direct contradiction or even confrontation to God's will? When's the last time you knew, really knew, all that you had done and left undone? Perhaps it was the morning after the walk of shame, the morning after you weren't so proud of the things you did the night before, Perhaps it was a few seconds after you said the words you regretted the minute they came out of your mouth. Perhaps you heard a song on the radio, saw an image on TV, and it broke your heart wide open. Or maybe you heard a difficult word, a necessary word, I would argue a loving word, from a friend. Whatever it was for you, we've all had those moments when our hearts are broken open just a bit, when we see things more clearly, understand the nature for a moment of God's claim on our life, and, and see and realize and internalize our complicity and our culpability. And in those moments when they come, like those who were baptized by John by the River Jordan, when we realize that we, we are eager to do something, and into that openness and that willingness, John delivers his punchline. His wisdom that after his previous tone and tenor must have sounded like sweet, sweet music. To the crowds who have gathered, who had their hearts broken wide open, he says, if you have more than one coat, share it with someone who doesn't have a coat. To tax collectors who are working for Rome, he tells them not to take more than is fair. And to the mercenary soldiers who had gathered that day, he teaches them not to threaten or extort and to be satisfied with the money they've earned. 
share, be fair, don't bully. The axe is at the root of the tree. The Messiah is coming. They've been called a brood of vipers, which is not a good thing. And John tells them, demands of them, to share, be fair, and not to bully. Am I the only one here who wants to laugh (laughs) with joy? After getting their attention with the word hard enough to crack open their hearts, John does not tell the crowds, hey, come join me in the wilderness, locusts and wild honey, it's great. He doesn't tell the tax collectors to abandon or betray Rome. And he does not urge the soldiers there to suddenly embrace pacifism. Instead, John points them to the places where they already live and work and love and laugh and struggle and strive and suggest that these places are precisely where God calls them to be, where God is at work in them and through them for the sake of the world. So what then should we do at this news of God's inbreaking, of our complicity, of our part? Be nice to the people you live with. Show them more grace than they deserve. Be generous to people you don't know, to friends, to family. Listen to your children and your parents, even if it means you're wrong and they're right. Don't take advantage of people that you supervise or have some form of power over. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Volunteer your time. Listen to all points of view. In such a divisive time, a complex time, when problems seem insurmountable and injustice incalculable, it's really easy for us to feel hopeless and helpless, to wonder out loud, perhaps, what difference can I make? But John is telling us today to not overcomplicate things too much. The axe may be at the root of the tree, but what God wants from us isn't all that complicated. We can make a difference where we are with what we have with the people we know through simple acts of generosity, kindness, and compassion. That's the response God demands. Now to be clear, I'm not trying to diminish the collective work, the corporate work we need to do as a people, as a church, to dismantle systems of oppression and injustice. This week, We were all reminded of the real human cost of systems and structures that are supported and built up and sustained by prejudice, hatred, and fear. We were all heartbroken to hear the death of seven-year-old Jacqueline Kale Maquin from Guatemala, who died three days after her birthday while in Border Control custody. Tragedies like this that happen on our watch are meant to wake us up, to remind us that we need to stand up and speak up against all forms of injustice that devalue any human life or encourage prejudice or fear or create systems where the people who suffer the most are those with the least. These things should not be, and we have a part to play. John the Baptist would be the first person to say there is a time for communal response to injustice, and that time is now. But John would also be the first to say it is always the time, 
always the time to do what is right and what is good, where we are, with what we have, with the people we know. It's always the time to give water to the thirsty, food to the hungry, and compassion to those lost and alone. It's really hard to hear, and it will break your heart if you hear it. But we are complicit in some way, shape, or form. We are complicit in making a country where the three richest people in this nation have the same amount of wealth as the poorest half. We are complicit, responsible in some way, and it's going to break your heart to think about that today, in this country, 600 women will be raped or sexually assaulted. Not this week, but today. We are complicit in systems and structures that have created a nation where we can have in custody 14,000 undocumented immigrant children right now in 2018. I, I fully believe that John wants our hearts to break at all the ways we create and sustain by our action and by our inaction a world where such pain and suffering exists. But the good news is that once our hearts are opened, the word that God drops in asks of us not the impossible, but the possible. Share, be fair, be kind. We can do these things. So simple in design, and yet as we know from experience, so often hard to do. Speaking of simple designs, quick question for you. Did you know that the first bent wire paper clip was patented in 1867? Did you know that? Didn't see that coming, did you? No. Originally, paper clips were intended to attach tickets to fabric, which sounds ingenious, but the patent for the paper clip also recognized it could be used to attach paper items together. Ingenious. Every year, it turns out, 10,000 tons, 10,000 tons of steel go into making paper clips. That's a lot of paper clips. Well, a few years back, during a slowdown in the economy, Lloyd's Bank of London decided to spend your money and its time to find out what happens to all of these paper clips. Where do they go? To do so, Lloyd's tracked a batch of 100,000 paper clips within its own bank. Here's what they found. 25,000 paper clips, not surprisingly, were lost in the shuffle, swept up or vacuumed into oblivion. So sad. 19,413 served as card game chips at a bank. 14,163 were twisted and made useless during phone calls. <laughs> that I believe. This is a little disturbing. 7,200 were used to, as hooks for belts, suspenders, or bras. <laughs> it's a choice. This one is just... 5,434 were used to pick teeth or scratch ears. Who are you? Because you're out there. Statistically, you're out there. 5,308 were used for nail cleaners. Guilty. 
And my favorite, 3,196 were used unsuccessfully as pipe cleaners. Which means the remaining 20,286 paper clips, or about 20%, there's the 80-20 rule again, about 20% of all the paper clips, only 20% were used for their intended purpose of clipping papers together. My point is just because something is designed to be simple does not mean it will fulfill its intended purpose. So what are we to do? Well, we are to wait for Christ's coming, for God's inbreaking, for Emmanuel, by living with intention, by committing to practicing acts of generosity and kindness and compassion where we are, with what we have, with the people we already know. A life of faith, it turns out, is pretty easy, actually, but it does require of us a commitment, a commitment to imbue every day, every moment, every second with divine expectation and purpose. So now that God's got our attention and cracked open our hearts just a little and dropped in a bit of divine wisdom, some good news, now we know what to do. Let's get to work and ready the world for our Savior. Amen.